Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Wendy James. Wendy's first novel, Out of the Silence, won the 2006 Ned Kelly Award for the first crime novel and was shortlisted for the Nita May Darby Award for women's writing. Her latest novel, The Steel Diaries, has been described as a thoroughly compelling and beautifully composed story of prominent Sydney artists, full of insight, humor, intelligence, and honesty. Wendy, welcome. Hi. How are you, Maggie? Great. So, um, Wendy, just to, to situate the listeners, can you read us a little bit from the book? Yes, sure. Um, This is from the end part of the book, and it's from a character called Annie. She's a bright little thing, bright as a button, sharp as a tack, quick, small and dark and curious, a whirlwind. Her own mother can't keep up. She's sitting up at five months, crawling at seven, walking at ten, then running. Once she can run, she never walks anywhere. And with language, too, she is fast. She says her first word at six months, want. Surely this is apocryphal but her mother swears that this first word was enunciated clearly and deliberately by her demanding toff, want. From the first, Annie is suspicious of the grown-up world, wary of adults. She is not one of those little girls who basks in the attention of her elders, nor is she the type who remains on the periphery, silent, observant, circumspect, listening to everything. There is no benign interaction with adults. Adults are the enemy. She is an expert in negotiating their world, in manipulating it to suit her purposes, an extra cake, an outing, ways of getting this or going there. Her siblings are the enemy too, purveyors of censure, of disapproval. They are on the side of authority, local emissaries of their mother. She is nothing like them. Her older sister Alice is compliant, content, a loving daughter. Alice is such a good girl, says the mother, smiling and patting her tidy curls fondly. Her brother Norm is a good boy, quiet, agreeable, affectionate. Almost ten years older than Annie, he is busy with his own life, can afford to good-humouredly ignore her. Alice, though, only four years her senior, is bewildered. You'll be best friends one day, her mother had said when Annie was newly born, the longed-for baby sister. You look after her, Alice, and one day you'll be best friends. Alice tries her hardest, but by the time Annie starts school, the two girls are openly hostile. Every opportunity she has to humiliate or cause her sister physical pain, Annie takes. She pushes, pinches, punches. She sabotages games, destroys toys. Alice, slower than her sister, but patient, vigilant, takes a bit of pleasure in spying on her sister, noting her misdemeanours and ensuring that Annie is regularly caught, first by their mother, then at school by teachers, dobber and hisses. But Alice knows it's justice. Mm. I, I love the character of Annie. She's so um, both so vibrant and so sort of mean. <laughs> yeah, she's mean. <laughs> did, did you have a, a, somebody in mind as a model for Annie? Um, the, the story is very... It is a kind of reworked um, history of the the Joy Hester and Albert Tucker entanglement and their child Sweeney, who becomes Zelda in the book. He was a boy, but um, so Annie is very, very, very vaguely based on Joy Hester. Um, I don't think Joy Hester was anything like as mean, though. <laughs> so that's where the story originated, then. Yeah, that that's where the original genesis of the story was. I read um. Um, Joy Hester's, well, I read a biography of her and I also read letters that she'd written to her friend Sunday Reed, who was the famous Australian art patron, Sunday and John Reed. Um, and Sunday, there were letters between them about all sorts of things, but the ones that particularly interested me were the ones that were about um, Joy Hester giving Sunday her child Sweeney to bring up 
and the, the relationship between um, the two women regarding that. Mm. In fact, yeah. <laughs> And interestingly, um, because you, you spoke to um, my interviewer Hope some time ago, um, many years ago, really, out of um, about out of the silence, and you mentioned to her at the end of the interview that um, you're working on a, a domestic mystery or drama called The Return, mm. and then one um, which at that point you were only thinking about about art, modernism, and motherhood, which of course is The Steel Diaries. Yes. Yeah. Um, Tell me what happened. Uh, well, the return was written and didn't really fit in with the um, the style of the previous novel, and the publisher didn't want it, so it's still out there. <laughs> and then I kept working on this, which of course became bigger and and better, and um, and and more really what I wanted to be doing right at that time anyway. So yeah, I still have a kind of not quite ready novel as well, which is quite a different thing, much more. Um, a commercial thriller, in a sense, mm. and I, I suppose another mystery as well. So yeah, yeah, it's much more. Um, it's an it's an old-fashioned imposter novel, which is something that's that's quite fun. But yeah, very different to the two previous novels. Now, nobody else has mentioned this, and it's probably just my own ignorance of the Sydney art scene. But I couldn't help thinking of the Whiteleys when I read this. Uh, yeah. Brett, Wendy, and Archie, even the uncomfortable stepmother. Um, did you? Was were you thinking of the Whiteleys at all? Well, a lot of artistic parents came into this novel. It was quite interesting. I did a lot of I did wide reading about mothers and daughters and their relationship and and artistic parents in particular because part of what I wanted to get across in this is the kind of way people who are creatively inclined feel that they have. Um, they're allowed to do things that other people don't do, so they can abandon children or they can live life at this very fast pace that doesn't necessarily include doing the dutiful thing and hanging around and being a dull domestic kind of person. So, of course, yeah, the Whiteleys did, they were part of that reading. Also, the Bloomsbury set, I read um, an autobiography of Vanessa Bell's daughter, Angelica Garnett, which had the sort of, there were sort of similar ways of being you know, to do with the. the our romantic idea about what artists are and what artists are allowed to do. So, mm. Yeah, they did. Also, Sylvia Plath came into it as well. So, yeah, a lot of it was about artistic mothers, um, Anne Sexton too, and her relationship with her daughter. There's quite a lot of them out there. Mm. And I did think about about Plath and, and Sexton too. Um, I won't say any more about why, but um, yeah, <laughs> that certainly um, came to my mind. Um, you know, just um, to the expectations that having famous parents puts on the children. I mean, that's another theme that seems to come into it. Yeah. And, and being secondary to your parents, I think that's really, you know, it's a huge issue in Zelda's life and, in, and a lot of these children too. It's just not being, not being real because your parents are bigger than life or larger than you can ever be. I love the line that she has in her, in her diaries about being a pedigree, <laughs> having a pedigree, yeah. as if she were a, a racehorse. Nay, nay, nay. Yeah, it would be a terrible thing to have to live up to. You know, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? That you know, you've got this genetic inheritance, and really, you must do something with it. Um, I was reading in the paper just the other day. There's a book out at the moment by Alice Walker's daughter, and she's writing about stuff like that, about this feeling that her mother was so big, and she kind of shriveled by comparison, and that she was fairly inessential in her mother's life. You know, which is a terrible feeling for a child. Mm. One of the interesting things, though, that um, you also uh, deal with is this the whole notion of sort of modernistic art and romantic art. 
and the way that plays out between, you say, Zelda and her parents. Yeah, there's, there's quite a tangle of ideas there because you've got Jules who does have a romantic ideal of art even though she is a modernist and then Zelda trying to sort of trying to find a way to contain to be able to have a domestic life and to be a great artist as well which seems an anathemist to, to her family but then also the the school that she goes to which is a part of the sort of Lionel, um, the Northern Lindsay kind of thing that was the idea I had there where art is sort of big and capital A and you know you have to be painting like Rembrandt to be an artist. Mm. You know, not, no more high art ideals, I think, at one point, Zelda says. Yeah, yeah, she's just had enough of, you know, the principles of art, but, but all sorts of different ideas coming at her, none of which includes, you know, things like comics or, or the everyday, which are the things that really, really appeal to her, just sort of ordinary life and ordinary people. Yes, one of the things I like about the Steel Diaries is how you take a, the same theme but you put it in different characters so that, you know, we can see how one parent deals with that relationship between responsibility and self-actualization, how Annie might deal with it, and then how Zelda deals with it, and then how Ruth deals with it, and, you know, looking at those differences and, and parallels. Yeah, and the three women, one of them, yeah, sort of has no balance between her, her creative life and her her art, and then poor old Ruth at the end who's who's doing everything for duty almost, which is equally sad where you get rid of all the romance and just kind of live for practical purposes. Yes, now I, I think to a certain extent you could probably say that this is, this is a novel about um, the female line, that the male characters tend to stay in the background, but there is a kind of male-female um, approach, almost a sort of yin and yang, if you like, not not so much men and women as, you know, kind of a, the way a man might address something and the way a female might address something um, going on in the novel. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, well, uh, yeah, I, looking at this novel and, and also looking at the last one, there do seem to be males who are really bad guys, um, like Douglas, who are all out there for themselves, and then the, the very loyal and good man who who nobody kind of gives his due and I think there's two of those in this novel there's Paul the stepfather and um and Richard the husband of Zelda um who who do everything right but don't really get rewarded I suppose <laughs> or or have difficult women or have difficult relationships um I'm not sure if it's a I'm not sure if that's what you meant to to a certain extent and also the way Ruth sort of aligns with her father and yeah. sort of models herself on him. Where, yeah. You know, and the, the way Zelda sort of, to a certain extent, um, you know, defines herself by her mother and her father or, you know, her step-parents or just in the whole set of relationships between mothers and fathers and their children. Yeah, I think, I mean, Zelda has the, the greatest difficulty. Um, she, she doesn't really have parents to align herself with, only expectations of being being like people. Yeah. Um, and yes, Ruth certainly models herself quite um, <laughs> determinedly on her father, which is you know interesting as it turns out. Mm. Do you almost see something else happening after the pages of the novel close? Do you know some catalyst from the diaries? Yeah, well, I always, you know, in the back of my mind, I have hopes that, you know, Ruth might become a bit more of a risk taker, I suppose. She was a very difficult character to write, um, to be honest. She's uh, that kind of very controlled person is, is 
very different to me. <laughs> but I've had a few friends, and the friends, in fact, who I, I didn't model her on, but I thought of as I was writing it, who said they just loved her. <laughs> That's been very funny when I've said, oh, God, <laughs> that's because it's you. <laughs> You can identify with that character type. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And they were both um, just coincidentally uh, involved in scientific things and in, in you know, mathematical and, and health pursuits. <laughs> so I thought that, that was, um, yeah, <laughs> and they really love Ruth. And that's good too, I suppose. Yeah. Particularly but, if, yeah. if you're writing about a character that's maybe not coming from some part of yourself either. Yeah, and and I haven't really had that experience before. There's been parts of myself. I mean, obviously, then none of the characters in me in any of the novels. But there's there's been aspects of myself. But with Ruth, I just felt there were very few aspects of myself. <laughs> it's the kind of person I'd like to be, but I'm not. And yet, you kind of imagine there's this wildness that's buried, sort of suppressed. Yeah. You almost imagine this kind of Annie quality somewhere deep down that that she hints at at times. Yeah, I do, and I, but I do think with the, with the, even with the people who are very controlled and have managed to kind of get their lines into you know particular grooves, that underneath them is something else bubbling away too. Mm. Um, they just, <laughs> just got it all tidy, unlike people like me. So talk to me a little bit about some of the the research. You've mentioned a couple of books that you read. What what else did you do to sort of get yourself in a, a place where you could write this? Oh, I read. I read books on Australian modernist art and um, all the various sort of um, things that were happening in the different cities. So while this is set in Sydney, this is um, very much more a Melbourne art scene. The Sydney art scene was very different and so I, nobody's noticed but I took a, a big leap and, and decided to put it all in New South Wales because that's where I live and, and wanted to put places I was familiar with in it. Um, but anyone looking at the kind of... The, the the modernist scene that was happening in Melbourne was very different to what was going on in Sydney. And in fact, um, Melbourne art scene, on, I have a feeling, is still seen as being superior to the Sydney art scene of this particular year, anyway. So I did a lot of reading about that. I did a lot of reading about women and mothers, mother, uh, mothers and daughters, and um, um, research into uh, the effects of being a motherless daughter. Um, yeah, research all around the, the, the place. The 1930s, the war, a lot of that didn't go into it, but I did do a lot of reading um, mm. about the Second World War. And did, did you, um, when you spoke to, to Hope again, um, I hate to keep bringing that up because it's no, that's... hard to look back and say, oh my God, I said that and I didn't do that or I did do that. <laughs> but um, do you, at the time you mentioned um, that you were going to be in 2008, which is now you'd be re-enrolling for the PhD. Oh, well, no. The PhD, it's <laughs> funny that you should ask because in fact I've now, in, I've, I've, I did my first novel as a PhD at Deakin University, which I didn't finish. We just had a series of sort of family crises and just too many children and all sorts of things happened right at the end um, when when the final work was due. I'd also written, unbeknownst to myself, a novel that was far too long for their program. Um, uh, and But I'm actually doing my next novel as a PhD at UNE, where at the University of New England here in Armidale. So um, I'm still doing it. I've just started. Oh, that's wonderful. And do you find, um, you know, writing a novel for a PhD, do, do you get um, a sort of constant support? Is it is it hard not to have too much input too soon? Well, I've 
the tutors have kind my supervisors have more or less left me on my own, my own for the novel. So when I want to, I can send them bits and pieces of it um, because they know I'll be able to do it more or less myself. Um, but when we get up to the exegesis, I think that's when then I'll need that pressure and that and, and a lot of advice. But, but with the creative work, not so much. So we're doing it in very um, orderly kind of sequence. First I'll do the novel, then I'll do the exegesis and leave myself plenty of time to get it done this time. And do you, is there any tension between, um, I guess, the purposes or, or the, um, you know, the, the user needs spec, if you like, of the PhD versus what your publisher would like to see? Um, I think there could be if I tried too hard to work the novel into a kind of uh, um, theoretical paradigm, but I'm not. I'll just, I mean, I, I've got ideas about what the novel's, what I'm writing about. Um, that I can use for the exegesis, but I'm not going to try and um, shoehorn the novel into to that. If they'll be quite separate, I, I can imagine if you're doing them much more in tandem, it could, or doing them at the same time, and it could be much more difficult, and you might end up with a novel that won't really work as a saleable book. But the idea of the the program is, you know, for it to be commercially viable as well. The university wants that to happen. Mm. And do you, you know, I'm as wary as anyone about the fuzzy relationship between um, writing and, and life, but um, do you sometimes find odd synergies between what you're working on and, and what you're experiencing? I mean, this whole issue, I guess you've got a, a lot of responsibilities too. So how you find the time for writing and education and, you know, and promoting, and you know, there's, there's quite a balance there, isn't there? Yeah, sometimes it just feels mad. I mean, you just wish you had two little parallel lives that you could flip through. <laughs> here is my work life, here is my, but it just never happened so yesterday, you know, I've got I've got a manuscript to, to mark up publishing that's meant to be edited this week and the kids were home with conjunctivitis, it's just, oh, it's madness, it's just, yeah, but it happens, I don't know where and how, so you don't, you don't, up getting done. there's not a part of you that's just a little bit jealous of what Annie did. <laughs> Well, yeah, I don't know. I wonder why I keep writing about it. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> not, not, not jealous, but it would be nice to just kind of have that ability to switch off and I don't really have it. I mean, I don't, you know, there's things like Varuna and I, I sort of think, well, I, I don't think I'd actually enjoy it. I'd, I love the idea of it, but I'd get there and think, oh, I had, um, my husband took the kids away for 10 days or so so I could get this book finished last year. And I really enjoyed that, but that that was because I was absolutely focused on working all that time, so I could do that. But I wouldn't want my life like that at all. No, I'd have nothing to write about. <laughs> and I suppose if you're multitasking all the time, it's really hard to focus on just one thing. Yeah, no, yes, yes. I've been thinking I have ADD. Actually, <laughs> the multitasking has got a bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. Um, now, talk to me just a little bit about um, winning a major award like the Ned Kelly Award. Did did it open doors for you or change things in any way? Um, I think what it did, I think it really surprised the publisher because they've never considered Out of the Science to be a crime novel, but of course I had. I mean, you know, it's pretty much at the centre of the whole story. I, I hadn't thought about the Ned Kelly. My husband uh, had been a cop for 15 years, so crime has always played a fairly, you know, it's been there in our life in conversation and things like that, even not, you know. So... I have had an ongoing interest in criminal acts <laughs> and the consequences to everybody. Um, and I'm a great reader of crime fiction, so I wasn't really surprised that the novel 
could fit into that category because I mean I'm sure the pace and the momentum and all of that stuff has probably come from 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 crime fiction really. Um, and the next novel is also going to be about a crime. So yeah, I think what it did mainly was made me realise that I am actually you know crime is of a, a central kind of concern to me, or crime, women and crime, which is a bit different. Mm. And um, and I suppose. When it comes to genre distinctions, um, it, you know, if you're writing a novel, I guess that's literary to a certain extent, that you know, where you're looking for characterization, perhaps as the main driver as opposed to plot, yeah, um, as a, certainly as opposed to a formulaic plot, um, then I, I guess some, sometimes it's, you know, if you if your novel doesn't fit cleanly into a genre, it's easy to say that it's you know it's a genre buster or it's crossing the border, yeah. Yeah, and I well, yeah, I think it, I think it's actually a bit of a problem here, um, or in publishing at the moment that um, people want these distinctions, or somebody wants the distinctions made, and I don't, I don't think they're necessarily good or or proper. Um, people write about all sorts of things. Yes. And I suppose as a reader, you just sit down and enjoy the reading. And yeah, yeah. I mean, somebody like Kate Atkinson is obviously writing crime fiction, but it's different. But you know, and it's not, it's not formulaic in any sense. And it is character driven as well as plot. I mean, completely tangled kind of plots. But um, yeah. And I, I don't see. I was sort of distressed when I was reading the James Wood book on fiction. You know that that he hates plot, and you think, well, no, I like plot. I like character, and I like you know I like good writing, but I also do like something to happen. <laughs> yes. I can't imagine a novel without a plot. Entirely. Yeah, no. I mean, the, the, the idea of the plotless novel is nonsense anyway. Mm. But I um, quite I, I quite like something quite big, but I don't see that that should be a problem for good writing. Yes, and I suppose that crime is good because it's so concrete. Yes. And yes. the change. Yes, changes everything, even if the crime was in the past. Yeah. Mm. Now, you've, you've written a little bit about the difficulty of coming up with a perfect title. Um, this one's pretty clean. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> I, um, I thought really hard about this one, and I, read, I must have read an article somewhere about how people like very concrete um, titles. So yeah, the Steel Diaries can't get much more concrete than that, can you? No. Um, did you Did you struggle over it a bit before you came no. out? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> not at all. Um, I think there's also it's sort of got a few. There's this um, Carol Shields book, The Stone Diaries. I kind of half had that in mind as well. Um, and I'm not not that there's you know all that much similarity except for it's sort of going through women's lives. But um, yeah, it just has a nice nice sound. And <laughs> yeah, that no, was easy. That the one before was terrible. It was really hard. I did, in fact, have the perfect title for it, but the publisher didn't like it. <laughs> so the, the publisher came up with that of the silence. Well, no. Then I must have written. I don't know. I just grabbed my words out of the air, really, in the end, trying to think of something that they would like and I would like. Um, the, the original title was "Unfortunate Creatures," which I really like. Kind of an ironic. Um, take on on the on the characters in the novel, and then we had something. We had another one with silent currents, but <laughs> someone was worried they'd get confused with raisins. We <laughs> <laughs> ended up with out of the silence, which you know it's it's got some nice historical kind of things, and <laughs> but it's quite long. Well, forward, yeah. All right, that's that's good. Now look, we've we've only got um, five minutes left, so just quickly, can you tell me a little bit about the one that you're working on? <laughs> Um, 
just so, the, just so in three years' time I can actually go back and say, what happened to that one? You what happened to that one? I'll say, well, <laughs> I'm still doing it. Um, this one is, again, about a woman and a crime, a crime from the past that rears its head, and it's it's got some um, connections with some current cases um, sort of here and in the UK. Um, and I, I probably don't want to say too much about that, but what, what it will be is the sort of story of how a nice middle-class life can completely unravel when, when a sort of stupid mistake from the past rears its head and it'll be set in a place something like Armidale, um, a university town, and that'll be fun and be quite contemporary, although there will be some flashbacks to the 1980s. Um, and also, just because I have a teenage daughter and it's and it's quite fun <laughs> thinking about what a teenage daughter would think when their middle-aged mother gets caught for a, a past crime, it'll also um, come from her perspective as well. So, yeah, it should be fun when it's done. <laughs> will, will you reality check it with her? <laughs> Yeah, I don't know that I will. She hasn't read either of the other two novels. <laughs> I might, might not. <laughs> do, 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 do your children um, want to read your books? Do you find that they're sort of clamouring over them? No, no. They're very disappointing. Quite a few of their friends have read them. I, think, I actually think they're, they're kind of resistant a bit, to be honest. I mean, they're both reasonable readers. Um, I think they don't want to... I don't know what's going on there. It's very odd. I've stopped asking. <laughs> and and thinking of both books, they're you know they're probably suitable for young adults. I can't yeah. think of anything in them that you wouldn't really wouldn't want a a young adult no. to read. No, I think you know from sort of fourteen up, they'd be fine. But but no, and I I actually find it quite odd. So I've stopped asking because I think there's something going on there. Um, I don't know what. I think they might think there's sex scenes in it, and what could be more embarrassing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. <laughs> All right, um, if. Um, listeners would like to get hold of your books or find out more about you. Is there a place they can go to to get some information? Um, I have a I have a website which is Wendy James Writes. If they put that in, that will come up, um, and that's got some information on where to get the books and reviews and things. Um, the books really only this Steel Diaries is only available in Australia at the moment. Um, Dimex or, or any of the other online bookstores. Uh, out of the silence, you can get really cheaply um, from a lot of UK and US bookstores. So it's 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 widely available. Wonderful. So, yeah. Terrific. All right. Well, thank you very much, Wendy. Um, okay. That thank you. All we have time for today. Our next guest is actually a duo. We've got Mike French and Paul Berman, both of whom are novelists but they also run a literary magazine titled The View From Here. So we'll be talking to them about their journal, their work, and lots more. Don't miss it. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.